This morning, we're going to be reading from John 20. It'll be verses 19 through 31. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands, the in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. Doubt is often treated like a taboo subject in church. You may have noticed with some of your upbringings. And I think that's often because Christians, religious people, have a tendency of confusing doubt with disbelief or unbelief. Uh, maybe you've even expressed doubts of your own or questions in some kind of group or gone to even a spiritual leader and said, I don't understand this. This doesn't make sense to me. And you push back a little bit and maybe you've been greeted with comments like, you just need to trust God or you need to trust God more. And to statements like that, you just need to trust God, I would say, you know, maybe. And maybe it's possible and I've seen it happen, so I know it's possible for doubt over time to become a more settled, almost like agnostic kind of doubt where it actually does become an expression of unbelief in God. I've also seen it go the other way where people have reasonable questions, fair questions, honest and sincere questions or doubts, and it actually leads them to explore and it takes them into a deeper faith because they've wrestled with it. Um, I think oftentimes doubt is a little bit like exercising a muscle where you need that time under tension sometimes to actually get stronger. And it's not an unexamined faith that is necessarily the strongest faith, but it's, it's a, a faith not just that you've inherited from maybe parents or grandparents or someone close to you, but it's a faith that you own for yourself because you've plunged into some of these doubts and questions and my guess is in a congregation this size, like several of you or some of you watching online even this morning, 
are wrestling with some kind of doubt right now, or you have in the past, or you will in the near future. Um, You would say, I have questions for God. There are things that do not make sense, either in the Word of God or as I hold the Word of God up to my life. I've got some measure of skepticism towards some of the things that I encounter because there, there are seeming contradictions between like either who God says he is or how he says life is going to go and how things are actually going in my life. And someone this morning may actually be at the point of saying, like, I'm frustrated and I'm disillusioned, but I'm still here. I'm still showing up. I'm not, I'm not abandoning God, but my doubts are real. And I think doubts are real because we're not God. Doubts are real because we're not only human, we are, we are broken human beings. We don't know all that God knows. We don't have all the answers. And sometimes those doubts can sneak in just because we're like, I don't, I don't have the answer to that complex thing. And it's not as simple to me as maybe even some other believers make it sound. So I want to lead off this morning by just telling you, here's my one big idea that I think we find in this text And you'll remember we're going through a series of Jesus encounters. So last week we were talking about Jesus encountering death. We looked at Jesus encountering all different kinds of people, just like you and me, all different kinds of circumstances, just like the ones that you and I encounter. This morning we're going to find that Jesus encounters doubt in the person or the persons of his disciples. And here's kind of the one big idea where I think he leads them. This is like Jesus telling his disciples, like, bring your doubts. Bring your doubts. He is, he's inviting the doubts to come, but he's saying bring your doubts to the God whose word is true and whose character is trustworthy. And we'll see that both of those things are important, that his word is true and that his character is trustworthy. And the disciples are going to encounter both of those things, and you and I have the opportunity to encounter both of those things as well. So as we go through this text, we're going to have these kind of four points that I think this is kind of what John is showing us about doubt, all right? Just an overview. Number one, the ridiculous reasonableness of doubt, and I'll explain this, don't worry. Number two, the roots of doubt. Number three, the reaction to doubt. And number four, the reversal of doubt. So the ridiculous reasonableness of doubt and I say that intentionally because I think in this text, as in so many texts where Jesus is interacting with flawed humans who are broken, who don't see everything clearly, there's often a paradox in the text, often almost like an oxymoron of, like, how do you hold those things together? So there's a tension here. And I want to talk about both sides of this for just a moment. So I say ridiculous reasonableness of doubt. So on the one hand... The doubts of the disciples, as you look at them in the text, on one level, you would say, this is just ridiculous. And, of course, we have the benefit of looking back 2,000 years later and reading the book and knowing the story and being like, why did they doubt? That's so insane. That's so crazy. Because just imagine being the friend and the disciple, the apprentice of someone for three years of your life for most of these disciples. They've, they've followed Jesus around everywhere. And what they've discovered in that three years' time is is Jesus was never wrong. Jesus has power and authority over absolutely every situation, every enemy. And you could say resurrection is crazy talk. It just doesn't happen. 
It's crazy talk coming from anyone else other than Jesus. But as we looked at last week in John 11, Jesus had just very recently proven that he even had authority to raise someone from the dead. Someone that had been dead for four days. Someone whose body had already begun to decompose. He brought his friend Lazarus back to life. Furthermore, Jesus had prophesied not once but many times that he would die, even that he would be crucified and would rise again three days later. So, for example, in Matthew 16, 21, we read, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So that's a lot of specificity. The, the location, the people who would do this to him, the suffering the form of death, and then raised on the third day. Or another one, you know, in the very next chapter, Matthew 17, starting in verse 22, as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man, that's his title for himself, is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And what's important is, like, you look back at kind of the, the first verses that we read this morning, and you understand it's now three days later. And isn't this curious that not a single one of his male disciples even goes to the tomb to see if it might be true. Not one of them goes to even check it out. Like, hey, I think there's only a 1% chance that Jesus is actually coming back. But what if it's true? Uh, the, the picture is they're all locked behind closed doors, not, not going out to examine might the word of Jesus be true? And so you understand what I'm saying when I'm saying on one level, the doubt that they're displaying here is ridiculous. It's absurd because they should have trusted Jesus. But on the, on the other hand, I, I say the ridiculous reasonableness of doubt because the other side of this equation is they're human. And with their limited human understanding of how life and death work, it was, on many levels, perfectly reasonable for them to look at this last couple days of their lives and just think, how suddenly did this spiral out of control? I mean, you think about how quickly, like, they're just going to Jerusalem for Passover, and all of a sudden, Jesus is betrayed by one of the twelve, Judas. He's arrested. He's tried. He's whipped and beaten and scourged and crucified and buried. And it just happened all, bam, just like that. And it'd be easy for them to step back and it'd be reasonable in some sense for them to step back and say, what if we got it all wrong? What if Jesus was truly just a phenomenal prophet, but like in the vein of Elijah and Elisha that could even raise the dead because of the Spirit's power working through them and, and spoke so much truth and so much love and so much grace. But, but we must have gotten it wrong that Jesus is not the Messiah, the Son of God. He's just a really, really important prophet, and he died like so many prophets before him. And I think just looking through natural eyes of flesh, it was very reasonable for them to conclude some of the things that we're concluding. And I wanted to say maybe... Your doubts, our doubts are similar. That on some days, in some moments, we feel this schizophrenia of like, this is crazy that I'm even having these questions. I know the truth. And then you turn right around and you're like, but it's so reasonable and so rational that I would have these questions, these fears, these doubts. 
And I want to approach this text and I want to approach this topic of doubt not, not ridiculing you or lambasting you for having questions and doubts. Because we'll see here in a moment that's not what Jesus does with his disciples. And it's okay to kind of hold in tension the fact that maybe some of our own doubts and questions for God and questions about life and questions about how things are going. Maybe on one level you're like, this is ridiculous. I need to get over this. And on another level, you're like, but this is perfectly reasonable. I'm human. I just want to encourage you. Jesus knows how to meet you in that place of tension. He knows how to meet you when even in your own mind, you're like, I shouldn't be questioning this. I shouldn't be thinking this way, but I am. Okay? God knows how to meet you there. He meets his disciples there. So that's, that's what I mean by the ridiculous reasonableness of doubt. Now, number two the roots of doubt, and what I want to do at this point is just go back to the text and show you kind of the disciples' state of mind. Like, where is this doubt growing out of? And I think we see like three things here, maybe more. Number one, the first root of doubt is that they're stricken with grief. They're stricken with grief. Jesus is not just some famous rabbi, teacher, miracle worker. He's not just the Son of God. He is their friend. He is their dear friend. He is their best friend. And they could say, we have left everything to follow you, Jesus. We've left houses and families and vocation and reputation. We have staked everything on your claim to be the Son of God. And we hoped that that was true. And now we're looking at the situation, and it's not simply that Jesus died. It's the manner in which he died. You know, if you saw a loved one just suddenly die doing something that they really enjoy doing, you would feel a certain kind of grief because you now miss them. They're, they're lost to you on this side of eternity. But if you saw them suffer and suffer and suffer and be despised and rejected and hated and just ripped apart, that element of grief would be so much more intensified in your soul. And the disciples are looking at this and they're like, he was tortured, he was crucified. Every Jew knew it was a curse to die on a tree. And they are, they are just racked with anguish. And how many of you know that it's often something traumatic, it's often something painful or grievous in your own life that gets you starting to ask questions for the first time that you're like, I didn't even know I was capable of asking these kinds of questions of God or making these kinds of demands of God. But this pain, this grief... It doesn't seem like I would be experiencing this. I would be feeling this. I would be undergoing these circumstances if God was really God. And so that's kind of the first root there is just the pain, the grief. Secondly, and connected to that, a second root of their doubt is that they're blinded by reality, and I'll say, as they understood it. Okay, so they're not blinded by the full scope of reality. And then, in fact, that's part of what Jesus is going to introduce them to is like, there's a big part of reality that you actually are not seeing right now. And I want to show you that too. We'll come to that. But I say they're blinded by reality as they understood it because they're sitting there and it's like Jesus is whipped and beaten with a scourge. Like literally like nine, nine leather braids with chunks of glass and pottery and just shards of things that are whipped and then dragged through the body. So, I mean, they're, they're seeing to the degree that they saw any of this, like Jesus' muscle and bone is being exposed. And in crucifixion, as the body gets weaker and weaker, every joint of your body is coming out of socket. 
and your organs are starting to fail and you're suffocating. And furthermore, Jesus is speared in the heart by this Roman soldier just to make sure that he's dead. And they know, like, one does not come back from that experience. One does not come back from a Roman execution. And I think there's this tension of they, they would have loved to believe Jesus' word, in three days I'm coming back. But they also know simultaneously the condition of the body that they put in the tomb. They know what they handled with their hands, what they saw with their eyes, what they heard with their ears. This was their reality. And, and by the way, I want to pause there and just say, do you, do you understand how doubts... Whenever you and I have doubts, when the disciples had doubts, the doubts are really an expression of alternate beliefs. And like Tim Keller and others like encourage us to examine what are those other doubt or what are those other beliefs that you're using that undergird your, your doubt? Well, a, a belief that they had is like when we see a body in a condition like that, it is not possible for that person to come back. Okay, And that's why I say they're blinded by reality as they understood it. It's not that this was a, a mirage or a myth or a legend or just a, just a horrible, horrible dream that they could wake up from. They're like, this is reality. Jesus was treated this way. Jesus was murdered. And those become alternate beliefs now that this is their total reality. And that happens with us as well. Then the third root of doubt that, again, I think these are just kind of woven together, is that they are paralyzed by fear. So you have this grief element, you have this my reality element, and now you have this fear element that they're like, if the religious leaders, like, like people who know, you know, the Ten Commandments, you know, thou shalt not kill, but the religious leaders have all banded together and created this conspiracy and this phony trial, and they have murdered the Son of God and they're like, and we will soon share in his experience. That's what they're thinking. Because they're like, we are associated with this rabbi who's considered a false prophet. Therefore, we're next. And whether the, whether the religious leaders are able to dispatch the Roman soldiers again to come get us. But you can see, like at the beginning of this chapter, where they're sitting here, or the beginning of the section we read, they're sitting here behind locked doors. They're hunkered down. They're hiding because they are terrified that what just happened to Jesus is going to happen to us. And so just to summarize what I just said, the, the roots are just basically this. It's like Jesus is dead, he's not coming back, and we're next. And you can understand how doubts would grow out of the, that, that kind of soil in the heart where you'd be like, I have questions. And they're probably thinking, I have questions that God cannot answer. And, and before we just skip off to the Jesus part of this, which is so important, and we want to get there, but I wonder if you can relate to any or all of these roots of doubt or even add your own, that, again, maybe you've gone through something traumatic, maybe a specific instance, maybe a pattern of trauma or pain, um, because as a pastor, as a friend, I've heard questions like these, like these, God, if you're really there, why won't you take away my chronic pain? Like, if you're really there, why won't you let me catch a break? Why won't you heal my marriage? Why did you let me experience years and years of infertility and a miscarriage? And, I mean, we could go a thousand different directions, like, w w with that. But, but you know your own pain. You know the, the terrible things that have happened to you. Maybe some of them by your own choice. Maybe some of them you're just honestly the victim of something truly painful. 
And out of that, do you find these questions for God growing and even spiraling and taking over more and more of your thinking where the doubt is getting bigger? Um, or as I said, this, this limited view of reality where it's not like you're just fooling yourself and it's like, oh, those things didn't happen. They did. Like it's not the total picture of what's happened or what will happen in your life. But you, you have this experience like the disciples did where you're like, God, my, my eyes of faith are, are kind of being trumped right now by my eyes of flesh. Like what I'm seeing and experiencing with my five senses and, and everything I can make sense of my circumstance, I, I know that they're not just physical eyes and physical senses, but they're spiritual eyes and spiritual senses. But I have a limited view of reality, so I've got questions. Or like I said, fear, the last one. Maybe you're dreading something for yourself or someone you love, and it's provoked questions and doubts that you've never had before. And like again, just kind of paraphrase, I love these first couple pages of Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God, where he's like, you have doubts, I have doubts. Learn to doubt your doubts is his phrase. Like learn to, like don't just look through your doubts at everything else and be like, well, my doubts are more totalizing than anything. But you learn to actually like kind of take a step back and say, what are my doubts? Where are those coming from? And, And again, usually it's like, what am I experiencing in here or in my circumstances, in my relationships that's producing these kinds of doubts? And like just being able to label it, like what am I saying is true in order to hang on to these doubts? What, what alternate belief system have I embraced in order to say that these doubts are completely reasonable rather than growing through them? Okay, so those are the roots of doubt. Now, thirdly, Jesus shows up, and this is the reaction to doubt. Okay, so Jesus shows up because so, he is risen. I mean, we know that. We're about to celebrate that a couple weeks out on Easter. And it's what we celebrate every Lord's Day is that Jesus overcame death. He overcame sin. He overcame judgment. He overcame everything that could defeat us. And here's kind of like when I look through just the, the natural lens of like, what, what would I do if I were in Jesus' sandals? And it's like I would show up and like at a minimum there would just be like this disappointment, Right. Well, just like you, you could see it in Jesus' eyes. Like he's kind of disgusted with us. He's kind of frustrated with us. It could be worse than that. I mean, he could just come in guns blazing with like rebuke, almost even rejection of like, you know what? I don't need you guys. I'm going to find some other people who were more faithful, more trusting, didn't have those kinds of doubts. Because if I'm going to build my church, I'm certainly not going to build it with people like you. And instead, I want you to see how Jesus actually reacts that instead of coming in with this stern disappointment of like, see, I told you so, you little freaks. Jesus offers, number one, peace. And three times here he says, peace be with you. And the peace there, the, the Irene is the Greek word, is an equivalent to the Hebrew word shalom, which many of you may be more familiar with. But it's, it's a comprehensive word that's like, I offer you tranquility. I offer you harmony. I offer you freedom from worry. I offer you, and, and this is the shalom idea, is like a total sense of well-being that's grounded in reality. Okay? And I think if we take a step back and say, like, when he's saying to all the disciples and then later just separately to Thomas, who wasn't there the first time, when he's saying, peace be to you or peace be unto you, 
Like, what kind of peace is he extending here? And I think there's at least two kinds. One is uh, just an objective peace where he's saying, look, you were not right with God. There was hostility there. There was animosity there because of your sin. But he's literally saying, you know, I died to pay for your sins. I died to reconcile you to the Father. And now I've risen from the dead. I've opened the way for you to come to God through my sacrifice of myself, my body, my blood, broken and shed for you. And so there's this objective piece where he's saying there is no enmity with God. You are reconciled to the Father. There is only peace now. And then based on that objective piece, there's a subjective piece. Like you can actually feel like that's true. You don't have to be controlled by circumstances that are scary, that are painful, including the plausibility of death. And he's like, you can have this experiential or like existential real-time peace in your emotions, in your thoughts, because you have something new to kind of hang your doubts on, to hang your faith on, and to realize there is peace. God is working his story. So Jesus offers peace. And I said three times. Secondly, Jesus offers proof. I love this one. That instead of scolding them, because what did the disciples want? Why are they locked behind closed doors? What do they want? They want proof. And, and they're too afraid and they're too wrapped up in their grief and they're too wrapped up in their version of reality to actually go and discover that proof for themselves. So Jesus comes to them. And I love this, that in, instead of chastising them, rebuking them, calling them names, starting over, look at this. He's like, Jesus showed them his hands and his side. And it's a word that's like, literally, he made known to them and explained the meaning of. So it's not just like, here you go. But he's like, look, see that, see that, see this, you know, right? And, and they're like, oh, my word. These are, these are the fatal wounds of the cross. And he's explaining to them and he's showing them and he's saying, look at me with your eyes and touch me with your hands. And, and then later for like so-called doubting Thomas, which by the way, Thomas gets a bad rap, right? Because all 11 disciples, besides like Judas has already killed himself for betraying Jesus. But all 11 disciples are in the same boat. It's just that Thomas didn't happen to be there the first time. But, but he kind of doubles down all this. And he's like, he's literally saying, like, I will never, ever, ever believe unless I personally for myself see it and touch it and know that this same Jesus that went in the ground came back out and is alive. And Jesus doesn't come back, you know, many days later and scold him uniquely. He literally says, put your finger here. And see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And I think Jesus is doing this because Jesus isn't afraid of where the evidence will lead. He's not like, you shouldn't need proof. You should just believe. He gladly says, look, see, touch, feel. And I think that's because faith isn't opposed to evidence. Faith isn't opposed to facts. In fact, in the Christian faith, we believe that, that faith and evidence, faith and proof, faith and facts very much go together. That God is not saying, hey, check your brain at the door because none of this is going to align with the world that you see and human nature and science and history and all that. But just, just trust me that, no, he's like over and over again in history, in church history, in the Bible, in science, in the resurrection, 
He's offering proof. He's saying, don't disbelieve, friends, but believe. So Jesus offers peace. He offers proof. Thirdly, he offers purpose, verses 21 and 23. Incredible. Not only is Jesus not done with the doubting disciples, he has a purpose for them. He has a mission for them. And he says literally, as the Father sent me, even so now I am sending you. What he's saying is, disciples, you are, you are now apostles. You are sent ones because you are eyewitnesses of the resurrection of God. Like God died, now God lives again forever. You've seen it with your own eyes. You've held it with your own hands. Now I've got a message and I've got a mandate for you to go as I myself came and declare this good news to everyone. So they're not sidelined. They're not like on probation of like, I want to see some proof that you can work through your doubts a little more effectively. But God's just like, I have a purpose for you. And then the, the last thing here, this is, this is how Jesus is reacting to doubt. Not only does he have a purpose, he offers power. Verse 22. He doesn't merely commission them and say, I have a job for you to do. Best of luck. He empowers them. He says, receive the Holy Spirit. And then it says he breathes on them. And some of you may know in both Hebrew and Greek, the word spirit is related to the word breath. And so there's something symbolic in this that when Jesus is like, whoo, whoo, like breathing on them, he's, he's telling them, like not in that moment are they receiving the spirit. As you know, church history, if you know the Bible, that comes in Acts chapter 2, where at the Feast of Pentecost, 50 days after Passover, that's when the spirit comes in power on those apostles. But, but this is so important because what Jesus is doing is saying, here, here's the promise, basically. Yes, I want you to go fulfill my mission because the people that you encounter in life are going to have the same kinds of questions, the same kinds of doubts, the same kinds of failures. And they need to see firsthand from your broken, messed up lives that Jesus is for broken, messed up people. Now, here's the power to go speak and to speak boldly. And they do. So let me just pause here and kind of summarize this point. So we're talking about Jesus' reaction to the disciples' doubt, okay? And again, we can go back to the first point and be like, their, their doubt on so many levels was so ridiculous. It was so preposterous. And, and Jesus could have shown up and just been like, see, I told you so. You should have believed me. What in the world is wrong with you guys? But here's what I love, though. Jesus accomplishes this goal of encouraging them Number one, because he grounds their faith in reality. He just says, look at what's true. Like, remember these promises. Remember the word that I spoke to you. And now you see the fulfillment of that prophecy. You see the fulfillment of that promise. And now you know you can trust my word, even if it's just bonkers. Even if you're like, there's no way God could do that. If God said he's going to do it, he's going to do it. You can trust his word. But, but what I love like, this is amazing, is that he's not just like, hey, here's this pile of books, here's this pile of evidence, here are these websites you can go check out, there's the evidence, that's all you need. But as, as Richard said in our worship time, Jesus is showing up personally, and he's showing up how? He's showing up in unconditional love and just an extraordinary patience with the disciples. And there's grace, and there's mercy, and there's empathy, and there's gentleness, and what Jesus is showing them is not only can you, like, believe me or believe in me cognitively, like, yes, I know now that Jesus died, was buried, rose again on the third day. My mind grasps that. But he's like, you can also trust him personally. 
And that's why I said, again, going back to this one big idea, bring your doubts to the God whose word is true and whose character is trustworthy. Jesus is showing up and all of these mix of reactions to the disciples' brokenness, the disciples' doubt. He's like, you can believe my word and you can fully trust my character. That's the kind of God you're doing relationship with. Now let's go to this last point, the reversal of doubt. So what happens when the disciples encounter this kind of grace and this kind of evidence, this kind of trustworthiness? What happens when they recognize that Jesus is not only true and right, but he's also compassionate and good and gentle. Well, I said the reversal of doubt, and this is kind of, you, you see this in the balance of the text. Verse 20, first of all, notice they experience delight in place of grief. And this, this verse 20 is so comical, at least as it's translated by the ESV translators. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And I'm like, no, I'm glad when I get a good night's sleep. The, the word here is actually, they were ecstatic. They were rejoicing. And you can imagine that reversal in their lives that, that one moment they're behind these locked doors and they're like, life has unraveled. We have ruined everything because how do we just go back to fishing or tax collecting or all these other things that we used to do? How do we put all those relationships back together when we're now associated with this false Messiah who got himself killed? And that's what they're thinking. And, and, and all of a sudden, behind locked doors telling us something about a resurrection body, there's Jesus, and they know it's Jesus. Again, not an apparition, not a ghost. You know, like later in the Gospel of John, next chapter, like Jesus is going to broil fish with them on a, in a fire on the beach and sit down and eat to kind of be like, okay, do ghosts like broil fish and eat with you? No, like I'm, I'm me. Touch me, see me. They experience delight in place of grief. And I love that, that I, I don't think God just wants to kind of swoop in on your doubts, friends, and like cognitively encourage you. So you're like, oh yeah, I shouldn't have doubted. I think God wants to turn your mourning into joy. That's the kind of God he is. Not just to correct your thinking, but to say, I'm here completely reversing this mourning into dancing. Then verse 28, they experienced assurance in place of disbelief. And again, I want to show you that, that that assurance is not just Jesus has called us to dream a dream and we saw a vision. And was that vision real? Like was that dream like grounded in reality? Because sometimes you know, like you, you, you have a dream at night. I mean, like you're in your REM sleep or whatever and you have a dream and it's, there's a connection to reality. And you, some of you may even be like, was that God or was that like the tacos that I had last night, or what, like, what was that? God's not relying on that here. He's not relying on a dream, an apparition, a ghost, a vision. He's not like, in time, you'll get over your grief, you'll get over your fear, you'll be more bold because, you know, time has a way of healing all wounds. Like, that's not the story. Again, he rolls in. He's like, look, touch, do whatever you have to do to see that these are fatal wounds, and yet it's me, and I'm very much alive. 
And as we, we already mentioned Thomas, and I, that's, that's why I called out verse 28. Because Thomas in particular is the one that's like, it's not even good enough that, that a bunch of my best friends that I've done life with for three years are telling me that they saw him. He's like, I will never believe unless I see Jesus for myself. Then Jesus graciously condescends to that demand. He shows up again, and Thomas touches him, and he sees him. And this is actually one of the most incredible confessions of faith in all of Scripture, where he just, like, in that moment, he's like, my Lord and my God. He's the first word, Lord, I mean, it could be, like, master. It, it maybe is not a divine title, but the second one is the divine title, and it's only a divine title. He's saying, my Lord and my God, like, bedrock assurance in just the, the flash of a moment's time. So friends, like even as some of you consider the Christian faith, I want to point out that the assurance that Jesus offers that he died, that he was buried, that he rose again, is not a myth or a legend or a fairy tale. It is empirically true. It was grasped by rational minds who saw him with real eyes, who heard him with real ears, who touched him with real hands. And everyone who had that experience had more conviction than ever before because of that encounter. And uh, it's so important to see those final verses where he's like, that's great that you saw those things. You saw what you needed to see. You touched what you needed to touch. Now you believe. And he's like, but blessed, happy, favored are those who believe without having that experience because you believe the testimony of Scripture and you believe the character of God. So they're experiencing that. Finally, they experience courage in place of fear. If we had time, what I would do is just have you flip a couple pages forward because right after the end of the Gospel of John is the beginning of the book of Acts. And it's, it's like the long title is basically like the Acts of the Apostles through the power of the Holy Spirit. And what comes next with these guys who like one moment are just racked with grief and fear is like the Spirit does come in power just as Jesus promised he would and day of Pentecost, all of a sudden these guys are out of hiding and they are publicly in Jerusalem proclaiming that Jesus is the Messiah. And they're like, and, and even to the religious leaders and the political leaders, they're like, and you murdered him, the son of God. And he rose from the dead and now he's ascended on high to the right hand of the father. And he's coming again to judge the living and the dead. And some of them that are hearing them are like, whoa, like what do we do? And they're like, you repent and you believe in him. And then later, a couple chapters in Acts, like the, the religious and the political leaders come to them and they're like, look, you got to shut up or we're going to do to you all what we did to Jesus. Like, we will kill you. And they're like, no, we, we cannot help but speak of the things that we have heard and seen. We will not stop. And, and if you're like, what happened well, what happened is, like, Jesus actually came back and he conquered their doubt and he conquered their fear. Again, not just with facts and evidence, but with love and with grace, with forgiveness, with restoration. I always think of these kinds of stories, and this is not an exact parallel, so don't take this too far, but... I love seeing some of those videos and often they're done in like a compilation where the military dad or the military mom has gone off to serve overseas, maybe even in a war. And I'm sure the parents are like, look, you know, I'll be a survivor. I'll come back. And the kids may be like, well, how do I know that you're going to come back? Well, I'll just come back. 
Okay, so that's, that's not the same kind of promise that Jesus can make because Jesus has authority to, to come back. But nevertheless, I'm sure many parents in the military are like, I'll, I'll come back. Um, and you know those kind of videos I'm talking about where it's like the little boys at his baseball game or the daughters like cheerleading in the middle of the basketball court and the, the military dad or mom has like secretly come back home either on leave or at the end of a term or something and often like will walk up behind a spouse or a child and the child is just kind of doing their thing and all of a sudden it's like, oh my word, it's you. Like, and, and it's true. You know, and, and what, what a parent could do is, like, send a text and be like, all right, I'm at home, and, you know, I'll be here when you get here. And they, they're just like, okay, cognitively, I accept that. But, no, you, what you see, the, what the parents are doing to prove and to put those doubts to rest is, like, coming and loving and embracing and laughing and crying and being together. And that's more what Jesus is doing. Like, I don't want to just blow your minds with truth bombs and just be like, oh, I guess it's real. Like, there is that truth. That real world, like he raised from the dead truth, but he's coming in love. He's coming in compassion. So you get not just evidence for Jesus, you get the real Jesus. All right, let's wrap this up. Um, I'm going to have you talk about this in your small groups. Talk about it with friends. Talk about it with family. Um, I would conclude it's not necessarily a sin to have doubts, to have questions, to have a measure of skepticism. Because Jesus doesn't call you to be gullible. Um, he's not forcing you to make this blind leap of faith. Faith is faith, but it is not a blind leap of faith. In reality, Christianity is the world's most falsifiable religion because you can look at other religions and it's just like, well, some guy was out in the desert by himself and he comes back with a book and he's like, well, God showed up and told me that you should believe this stuff. And you can, you can believe it or you can disbelieve it, but you have no way of ever verifying like, did an angel really show up in the desert and tell that guy to write that stuff down and that came from God? Like, I don't know. You can stake your life on that, but you, you will never really know. You know, Christianity is the only religion, and it is a religion. It is a gospel. It's good news. But it's the only religion that it's like the whole thing happens in plain sight in real space-time history. And if the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ did not actually happen, then, like, let's go, let's go do brunch on Sunday mornings because that would be way more fun than giving ourselves to a lie. But I love that, that Jesus meets us in this place of doubts and questions and frustrations and, like, I'm skeptical about this. And I'm speaking to some of you who would say, you know, maybe your skepticism comes from, you're just like, man, I, some of the people that have hurt me the worst have been Christians, professing Christians, who may even hold a position of authority in their local church. That's who hurt me. Or some of you may even say, like, the church in general hurt me, disillusioned me. So I've got questions. And again, I, I want to say, like, with the kind of tenderness and gentleness that Jesus said to his disciples, he's like, yeah, I get that. So I don't want to just blow you away with facts and data points, but I want to help you encounter the real, authentic, trustworthy Jesus. Again, not just giving you true and trustworthy words and promises, but giving you a true and trustworthy person. Okay, so whatever your doubts are, whatever your questions are, like bring them to a God 
who's big enough to handle those kinds of questions to a God who loves you, a God who gives you the gift of not just evidence, but the gift of himself.